Hello and welcome back to another episode of L&D Disrupt Life. This week it's all about advice for solo and small L&D teams, which can be a challenging position to be in. There's so much that we can do, but we need to focus on the stuff that drives impact and prioritise that. We want to build good relationships with people while still being able to push back and say no. And ultimately, we want to keep enjoying the ride in what can be a challenging position. So I'm pleased to say I was joined by three brilliant guests who'd been there, done it, and were willing to share their honest experiences and insights and best advice for people in similar positions. So here's my conversation with Emma Aplin, Associate Director of Learning and Development at Bicycle Therapeutics, Erin Frost, Head of Learning and Development at Cooper Parry, and Annie Woodcock, Learning Lead and Coach at Hyphen. And a reminder that as always, you can connect with our guests using the LinkedIn profile links in the episode description. But that's it for now. So enjoy this conversation about advice for solo and small L&D teams. Let's kick off with what Emma mentioned about prioritizing the things that add value, because as a small team, there's so much we can do, but we have to be kind of ruthless about the things we prioritize, where we spend our time. And Emma, I guess part of that is how we manage expectations of what we do and what we're capable of, because that influences how we prioritize effectively, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I came into a business that didn't really know um, much about what they wanted from an L&D function. They just knew they wanted one. And so part of my strategy, for want of a better word, has been bringing in the foundation. So a mentoring program, coaching. So I'm an internal coach as well. Um, A platform that has e-learning, because that for us is one of the easiest ways of getting development out there to a lot of people when they are extremely busy we hear that a lot I have no time to learn or develop well now you can in your own time and um from there it's about layering it as you say and um I think one of the challenges that I have faced has been around what's the return on investment um and I don't want us to go too far down a rabbit hole with this one because it's a big topic Uh, But I have struggled somewhat to try and um, help the business understand that there is not a measurable necessarily around um, some of the L&D portfolio. um, But actually, it's more about the experience, the retention, the engagement and how we can help people uh, move within their careers, not necessarily always upwards, but also broadening it as well. Um, and for for me, that is the biggest value add. So trying to prioritize what comes within that, um, as well as being thrown everything that even is remotely learning or development in my direction, which isn't always on the agenda, um, has been quite difficult. But I think if you have a really clear view of the foundations and then what you definitely need to achieve, then everything around it becomes um, a lot easier to to manage and to push back on if needed as well. And to say there is only one of me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's maybe more of a shift in expectations rather than managing expectations, especially in your case, coming in, there not being a foundation or a clear understanding of what L&D is. And then maybe people perceiving it as one thing. But then I guess, like you said, if you set clear parameters around this is what I'm here to do this is what I can help you achieve and communicate that back to people is that what you've seen 
personally work in terms of being able to say this this fits within that remit we should prioritize it this maybe doesn't we can put a pin in it perhaps absolutely and i think certainly as a as a broad view i've always said if it benefits the entire org or more than 50 percent, then it comes into my remit so um, talent and succession for example general learning and development soft skills mentoring coaching Anything that is specialist should sit within the departments. Yes, I will try and help if I can in terms of partners and things, but ultimately that is for you to decide on for now. And um, if we do grow, then absolutely it can come back into them and do remit. Perfect. Erin, I wanted to bring you in because when we spoke before, you made this great point about saying yes to things that dilute our impact and i think that's quite an interesting mindset so uh, maybe tell us a bit more about that and then any thoughts you had on this prioritization point yeah so um i've had to get really good at saying no especially as we've grown so rapidly but i have four pillars um, that are aligned to our three-year vision and are, are aligned to our strategic objectives so now if something doesn't fall into one of those four pillars uh, I say no. Um, so, and I don't say it just blank. No, I, I won't support you. It's that I look for trends. So a lot of times I notice that even though departments feel they're all very unique in their needs, <laughs> a lot of trends start to um, start to crop up. So if it's not on strengths or leadership training or focused on productivity or early years, I start to create sort of a list um, with other departments of needs. Um, so, for example, confidence and resilience have come up a lot, especially with our early years. So I keep asking people keep saying, oh, I need more people aren't confident in meetings or they're not confident in person. So if I start to hear a trend throughout the business, as Emma kind of said, that 50 percent, if you start to feel like, oh, this sounds like we might need this as an organization, then I'll I might transition. But otherwise, I try to get external support to help some of those smaller issues, but really try to maintain my strategy because otherwise I can, I can go off on a tangent and start doing things that I just don't have capacity for. Just a follow-up question on those pillars. Were they things yeah. that you kind of agreed with people in like the senior team? Was it like a, a shared understanding of these are what they are? And has that made it easier having it as like a wider company um, consistent thing? Has that made it easier to be able to say yes and no to things? Yeah, absolutely. So we have we have our three year vision, and everything has to align to that vision. And there are there are parts in that vision that align to me as a department. Um, and then we have we break down that vision into a yearly target. So I can see directly where where my impact and what I need to be able to deliver on. And it's easier for me to say to someone if they say I'd like customer service training, I say, look, that just doesn't fall into our strategic objectives, but let's table that. Let me see if there's more interest in how I can support you in that. But right now, these are the four pillars that we're working on. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, Annie, any thoughts on what Emma and Erin both shared there? Yeah, I I think my approach is def does definitely overlap with both. I think the positions I've been in both L&D teams I've worked in is very much that we do don't have that three-year strategic vision. It's a bit scrappier than that. Um, so the way that I tend to operate with that is it's similar to what Emma said. Um, I feel like there's sort of three different things to consider when making decisions around prioritization for, for L&D in my position. The first thing is um, 
is revenue is 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 what i'm designing going to support the company in their financial goals um because you know having having a background in teaching i've had to learn to think in that commercial way but obviously it is super important to to do so so that that's number one and any decisions need to need to be made with that in mind and constantly advocating from my side for the learning experience um and sometimes making compromise in terms of what is most important for the learner versus for the business and usually there's crossover they shouldn't be in direct conflict if there are if they are I think you've probably got a bigger problem but um, occasionally there is the odd trade-off that needs to be made there so the first thing is is that commercial more commercial mindset the second thing is similar to what Emma was saying is how can you measure the impact of the experiences you're designing and I think that's a really big quite thorny question um, and I, I think the, the main way is starting up front discussing as much as you can what success would look like in terms of quantitative and qualitative results and being able to then paint the picture <laughs> later um, and also keep I think similar to what Emma said I hope I haven't misunderstood keep advocating for the fact that it will often be qualitative quite often there is it is a struggle to provide quantitative data of improvement so again keeping that caveating going that we'll do our best and we're going to put things in place to measure the quantitative results but also this it isn't a black and white process and then I think the third thing is similar to what Erin was saying is particularly when we work scrappy having a clear learning hypothesis and learning principles that you and your team if you have a team which I currently don't but I did previously in my, in my other role of, of eight people um, those principles that you design around so that even if the former two things don't happen, what you're designing hasn't actually improved revenue. It hasn't shown quantitative improvement in terms of um, skills development, whatever it is you're focusing on. You can say, okay, well, these are the four learning principles that we designed to. Let's say it's in a previous job, it was inclusivity, engagement, practice, and can't remember what the fourth one was. There was a fourth one. And you go, okay, based on the feedback that we've got, and having experienced eyes on these, does this learning experience deliver on that? Is it an excellent learning experience? Even if it hasn't generated the results that you've expected, if so, great. It might have actually just been the wrong thing that we were tasked with or that we chose to do. If so, let's apply the same principles and pivot to a slightly different thing that will help drive the results. But in that way, you can still prioritize because, again, decisions are made based on those learning principles. Um, and that, to be completely honest as well, helps you protect yourself um, from any kind of conversations about performance and, and excellence and in, in what you deliver in your role, because you can still say, I've designed this thing, which meets the requirements of, of what we wanted to, to achieve. Because um, unfortunately, you know, in L&D, we're often some of the first to go when companies start making cuts. So I do think it is important um, to think about it in that way. So those are three things, the commercial side, um, assessment and results, and then the learning principles. That's how I prioritise. Cool. No, no, I really like that idea of, I guess I see it from a marketing perspective as well. It's just not an exact science, but if you have those guiding principles and fundamental things in place that you say, when we create a piece of a learning intervention or experience, like these are our guiding principles. And if it doesn't work, we can explain the rationale that we stuck to these consistent elements across it. And therefore, it's maybe easier to say, here's why it didn't work. And pivot. So is that kind of part of that um having those principles? Has that helped in that sense? Exactly. 
Interesting. And one other small follow-up question was about revenue, um, because I wonder if this is part of it as well. Being commercially minded or being able to talk to the business on their terms, does that also help you prioritize? Because you can go to people and say, um, you know, like, this is going to cost this much, but it's not going to help the business move this needle that it's trying to do in terms of goals or profit or whatever the, the business metric is. But if you're more commercially minded, you can speak on the business terms. And does that kind of help you push back a little bit more having that commercial focus? Yeah, it does. And it's definitely still a work in progress for me um, as someone who has not come from uh, a very businessy background. But it for sure helps to be able to engage in those kind of conversations um, and work out together what trade-offs are worth it. And if, if anything is high effort and low impact in terms of the learning design, um, then it's probably not worth it because that's just some cost in terms of time. Yeah. It's those metri- uh, all those matrix things people always get you to do to prioritize your day. Is it high effort, low impact? Don't do it. You know, like those those little boxes. But annoyingly, they're always true most of the time. Um, Emma and Erin, any thoughts on what Annie just shared there um, before, before we kind of move on to a different topic? Perhaps? I would say the only other thing to just be mindful of, um, and I think we might have a few people on the call um, that are in an international remit. So I actually look after UK and US. Um, and in my previous role, I looked after um, people in every single continent, apart from Antarctica. Um, but I would say that priority is really crucial here as well, because there are certain initiatives that work really well globally, it doesn't matter which country you're in. But there are other things that just do not land in certain countries, and it may be just the terminology you're using. So for example, we ended up having quite an anglicised approach for our workshops at the beginning of this year. It just so happened that we had quite a lot of facilitators that were UK based. And our US colleagues felt quite isolated from that. They were saying, you know, it's not that we don't understand it, but the, the nuances and the cultural um, piece just doesn't work for us. So why can't we have anyone? I mean, obviously, there was a budget element to that because trainers in the US are a lot more expensive than the UK. Um, but we we have definitely become more mindful of that from a HR perspective across the board in terms of that inclusivity piece, particularly from an EDI perspective as well, that we're integrating that into our LD portfolio. So I would say from a priority perspective, it is important to just make sure that you are touching all of the right basis as well with your demographics. No, that makes sense. Um, Erin, how about yourself? Um, no, I don't know if I'd um, add much more to that. I think um, Annie did a great job. Uh, I think probably the piece on, I mean, I struggle with ROI as well, and that could probably be a whole, I don't know if you've already done a session on that, but that would be one that I would sign up for. Um, I think that helps me a lot when I think, when I'm trying to sell an idea or a project, um, looking at or asking people to think about, especially with client work. This is where we're at now, but imagine if we enabled our people to better manage client expectations or where is the loss currently? How much money are we not asking for? And just trying to get them to come up with some figures themselves that make sense. Um, that will then, yeah, help with the support and the funding that you might need to, to push that forward. Yeah, cool. Uh, I wanted to remind people that it, I don't think I said it at the start actually, but if you have any questions throughout as they're if they're coming to you as we're speaking, feel free to drop them in now. We will get to some questions at the end, but yeah, feel free to drop them in the chat and we can get to them while they're kind of relevant to to what it is we're talking about. And also, I saw quite a few people dropping in the 
um, their LinkedIn profile link. So please feel free to do that as well. I know we're going to get onto this, but the idea of like building a network that you can rely on as a small team. So um, if you want to connect with more like-minded people, do drop your LinkedIn profile link in the chat and we can all connect. And that leads us to the perfect segue because the next topic is about how we can build a wider team to bounce ideas off, borrow skills from, because I definitely see this as one of the biggest challenges. Um, personally speaking as well, when I've been a solo team, like even small things, can I get someone else to read this email before it goes out? Can I get someone else's thoughts on this and see if I'm completely going off on the wrong track and like rambling on it when I'm writing some copies? So I think that is probably one of the the big things. And I guess for a lot of people, it will start internally. So Annie, I wanted to ask you about this idea of surfacing your internal experts and the people who can lend us skills because you kind of mentioned it at the start, but you're already doing this a little bit with um, your one and a half team and, and bringing someone else in from the outside. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I have to say, I think this is probably my biggest challenge at the moment um, in my team is, is triangulating and quality assessing myself when I don't have a huge team or even many people to do that so the other half of my the other half person is wonderful in terms of providing feedback and that really helps but I'm very aware that even so we both come from a teaching background and have both worked in ed tech there's not really a huge amount of diversity in, our, in terms of our perspectives so one of the things that I do that's really useful is the, the very simply the process that I go through is I create quite rough slide decks and PowerPoint that's then translated into Figma by our product team. And when our product team goes through the slide decks I've created, they do it as though they're the learner. So they give me feedback um, on, on the kind of technical side and how this will translate, but also from their experience going through it as a learner would, which is incredibly helpful. Sometimes they'll just write little comments on the deck. So that's not necessarily leading to their expertise, but getting someone's eyes on it as though they were a learner who isn't a learning expert is just as viable to me as getting someone's eyes on it who is a learning expert. Um, other than that, one of the only, one of the other things I do, which I don't always do, I probably need to hold myself accountable to doing it more, is checking myself for bias in the, in the design process, which I think is one of the hardest things to counteract when you're busy and when you're a small team. And I use a framework called the Alexander Framework that I was um, taught on a, a learning design bootcamp that I did with a really great company called Ding Learning and essentially it's helping you check the beliefs you have about what you're teaching and also try and find other ways that you could do it rather than your default response which might be it might be the best response and often it does end up being what I go for but it is useful to triangulate and see if there are other perspectives out there you can spend half an hour doing a little bit of research a little bit of homework batting ideas around with someone else who thinks differently to you. Um, I think that's a really worthwhile exercise. I guess building that in as part of the process is useful as well, because if you're busy, you've got lots to do. It's so easy to just repeat what you've done before, do the thing that you think subjectively is the best thing that's going to work. And then suddenly, before you know it, you've not even taken time to maybe think critically about your work. So maybe the frameworks or the people you bring in are like a good buffer to make sure you're not just churning out stuff, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. And, and one interesting thing that's slightly different for me in the role I'm in now is that we design specifically for Gen Z talent. Um, so the emphasis and the style is a little bit different. It's a bit more gamified. There's a few more GIFs. It's a bit more informal. Um, so suddenly 
I'm not designing for millennials, which is what I am. I'm designing more for, for a younger audience. So I'm, I'm having to kind of sometimes check myself. and like, am I designing in the, the language that I find engaging and, and amusing? Because we are quite a lot about in, engagement and fun in our platform as well. Or is this actually going to be something that a younger audience is going to relate to? And to do that, I don't really have that much, apart from the odd bit of chat GPT. Would this, would it, like, does it, would this land with the Gen Z audience or else the couple of Gen Z friends that I have, I sometimes will chuck things their way and say, is this too old for you? Um, and that can be quite helpful. I can imagine that can be quite harsh sometimes. Chat GPT just tells you, no, this is not. And then you, so that's a harsh one. Erin, um, I wanted to ask you as well. I mean, have you seen this internally? Are you able to leverage skills from other people across the business? Are there any best tips and practices for doing that? Yeah, I mean, I have a few people I trial stuff on. I think it's activities and things that I want to create that sort of learning experience. So I have a few people I trial stuff on. Sometimes I have had to do it in the moment in a workshop, but I, I do like to get some feedback. I'm always looking for feedback. Um, and I also recognize that I'm not, I don't have a, an accountant's brain. I, I, I don't, I'm big picture. They're very detail oriented. So sometimes I need to look for somebody who's perhaps a little bit more analytical than I am because I'm out here, but maybe what they need is here. So I have a few people I know who, um, like Annie's saying, you know, their perspective is a little bit different. Um, but I have some external uh, support. So I have some people that I work with, like I work with Body Talk. I work with the Grow Group. There's some people who I can call and <laughs> I can talk crazy ideas with. Um, and they'll kind of be like, hmm, that's a little out there. Or they might say, okay, that sounds interesting. And just, it's just nice to have someone to to chat with. And I know some of my ideas are sometimes really left field. So I I know that I need someone to tell me that's that's a little crazy or that's a little cuckoo. You need to come, you need to come back on that or maybe start at a place where other people can relate. But I've, I've found my external contacts have been really, really helpful. Before we, I was going to ask you about external, building an external network, but actually I wanted to ask a follow-up. You mentioned obviously leveraging someone internally who has good analytical skills. And that is something I can mm -hmm. definitely relate to when I've been a team of one is understanding where my blind spots are and then trying to find people internally who have the skills. And the reason that analytical one resonated with me so much is I'm terrible with spreadsheets and I'm terrible yes. with HubSpot. So anytime it comes to anything like that, then I need to go and try and find someone internally who can um, kind of help me fill in that blank. And maybe I guess the challenge there is giving them enough context so they can do it in a way that's helpful to you. But I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I hate spread spreadsheets is a good example. I hate Excel and I work in a business where it's like Excel is the most exciting thing. <laughs> People love data and I hate data. It's not it's not where I come to life. That's not my strength. So I recognize that and I I do find people who I ask to either partner with. Um, if I'm doing something that's more technical, I'll definitely partner with. I wouldn't attempt in, in my in my wildest dreams to to be an expert in some of the things I'm asked to do. I'll partner with somebody I think who's engaging, who is maybe doing the activity day in and day out, and can offer um, some unique ways. And that's not only people within the department. We're looking at other people who maybe younger voices in the in the business, not just always looking for senior leaders, but what are some younger voices in the business? What are some people who um, have maybe struggled? And, and they can offer a different perspective or different ways of looking at things. 
I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of felt like it went off on them. No, no, it did. It did. I think it's that idea of, yeah, just trying to find the right people internally for the thing you're working on, I think is probably the, mm-hmm. the kind of core message for people. Um, Emma, I wanted to bring in bring you in here and ask you a bit about this process of, like you said, you're a team of one with quite a big headcount. So how are you kind of leveraging other people across the business to help you be effective at what you do? Yes. Um, it's great hearing Erin and Annie's views as well. And we actually do quite similar. Um, so I have learning champions across the business. So we have about six or seven in different areas. They either create content for our e-learning portals or they will um being some of my go-to people for mentoring and we have another internal coach as well. Well, they just help me, um, as Erin and Annie have said, just have a sounding board um, about certain things that we're doing. So that's definitely the the first thing. And we meet usually once a month or once every six weeks just to to check that we're all aligned in terms of what we're doing across the board. The second thing, so I come from a HR business partnering background. I spent 10 years in that before I moved into L&D. Um, and if you have the luxury of a HRBP, then um, or more, I would absolutely use those. And I do at the moment for things like training needs analysis, which we don't quite use that terminology anymore, but they certainly have the relationships. They understand their people. They know far more than I do about what those people um, and those groups are needing. And then they filter it back to me. And then I work with the business partner to think about how we can actually put together a development program or look at a piece of training that would actually have more impact than me just thinking um, outside of uh, some of those more intricate conversations. So the HR business partners are crucial, but got to get them um, on side because with any sort of co-e HRBP relationship, you've got to be cautious that there's that overlap at times, treading on toes. And so I have definitely learned to take that step back and use them as a partner rather than sort of doing it myself. Um, And then thirdly, just with the external piece, certainly something I've learned in the last two years, um, my background's media and tech. I moved into biotech, which is very different. And so my previous network didn't really understand this industry and this particular demographic and this size. I always worked, you know, two, five, 10,000 people plus going to a very small um company has a completely different set of challenges for L&D so I've had to basically re-establish a whole new network um, and build trust up with those consultants as well because there's definitely less places to hide uh, if it goes wrong um and so I've, I've used uh I've used networking events I've used um exactly forums like this to talk to other people and get their recommendations, ideas and thoughts and and help build up that new network of people that I can now go to as well. Yeah, I can totally relate. When you change industry or field or job, you are kind of starting from scratch in some ways because a lot of the people you build that network with are industry specific. And then you're, here we go again, I've got to more or less from scratch, but there you go. That's, I guess, part of the challenge. Erin and Annie, before we move on, I just wanted to see if either of you had any advice and tips on that external network piece. I think we kind of covered the internal one quite nicely, but external networks. Yeah, I I just think, I mean, as Emma said, these are great forums. I do have people that you know, I used to do luxury retail and, and sometimes I'll connect with them. Some of the some of the sort of soft skills and things I, I'm able to connect with, but I read a I love to um 
connect with like, I love to read different articles and everything and connect with people on LinkedIn or find other people who maybe not necessarily are in are L&D, but maybe might be subject experts um, to kind of give you a different perspective or a different way of looking at things. Um, but I know that's that's because I just love to hoard information and I just love to constantly be looking at different ways of doing things. But I think sometimes it's nice to just consider maybe how someone without an L&D hat on might, might view something or apply something or utilize something. And then that, that building on those connections, I think is important as well. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree because actually my advice for people would be to just like shoot your shot. If you see like, this is a really open and welcoming community and, and like industry, even like people just adjacent. I remember I read this paper from a professor in Hong Kong about something. I can't remember what it was. So I just um, messaged him to see if he'd jump on a call with me for 30 minutes to chat about his research. He was like, yeah, I had to get up at six o'clock. That was the trade-off because of the time difference. But um, yeah, like every time I've messaged someone to just say, are you open to brainstorm? Do you mind chatting? Would you be able to give your insights or your thoughts on this topic? The amount of times people have said yes far outweighs. The amount of times people have said no. So I would 100% recommend that to people. Cool. Uh, nice. So yeah, I, I can yeah. I can add one more thing. Sorry, I think there's a bit of a lag on my line, but one more thing I'd add to that is, I think I think it can be really useful as a learning expert, but also for the learning experience to outsource and get little videos from other people, so that it's not just you. Otherwise, <laughs> to get a bit sick of seeing your face with the same same people over and over again. So there's someone from a different team within your business, or else someone um, external to the business. That's been one of my highest leverage things that I think I've done is is for getting little clips of being like, I'm not a subject matter expert in this specific thing. That is okay. I'm going to ask someone to record a five minute video for me where they talk through how they go about something. Um, and I think that helps raise the prestige of what you're doing, but also creates a bit more variety, a bit more engagement. Um, yeah. And that, that often is just through LinkedIn, finding, finding people or else contacting people in my network who, who don't work in LD to be included in the learning experience, I think is a really useful, useful thing to formalize the process. Um, and add an extra layer of engagement. Yeah, I think that overlaps nicely with something Emma mentioned about using people internally to create content, because like you say, it adds credibility, adds context, because they're the people doing it. And I totally agree about that variety piece. Like even if you're presenting a deck internally and like three people to speak for five minutes, it's so much better for me than one person speaking for 15 minutes. And you get people to talk about their specialisms and stuff they're more engaged with. So um, super interesting. There's some great tips in the comments as well, actually, in the chat that I would recommend people check out if they haven't already. Um, but I've got to be the timekeeper, so we need to move on. So I won't read them all out. Uh, but the next thing is about getting buying across the business, because for all of the things we talked about so far to happen, you know, to be able to prioritize, to be able to have impact, we need people across the buying uh, the business to buy into it. And that can also be challenging as a small or solo team, whether it's like making your case, having that variety of voices, making the case for you, for example. So I wanted to dive into this and Emma, maybe you can kick us off, but maybe getting the senior leadership team to see our vision and how it aligns with the organizational strategy. I imagine you kind of had to do this process pretty thoroughly when you joined Bicycle, given there wasn't anything in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure we all know it. it's not as easy as it sounds either. Um, there are 
definitely some senior leaders that are more supportive and better advocates than others. And so for me, it was trying to get them to see outside of the outside of the box of what L&D actually is. No, it's not just about sticking a load of people on a training course and hoping for the best. It's actually so much more than that. And I think where I came at it was from a let's think about the wider scope. What is it that you need? You need good talent. So therefore, why don't we start with looking at um, developing your high potentials or your successes, for example, and what do we need? Let's do a bit of more of a bespoke basis. We're a small company. We have the luxury that we can do that. Um, Let's also not only go from top down, but let's go bottom up. Let's build a platform implement that which appeals to everyone that can do all of our compliance training dreaded word for me but um it does mean that we don't have to worry about trying to work out who's done what and what do we do that through etc it's all there you can see the the data through reports and things so much easier so it was trying to make the lives of the senior leadership team um easier whilst also making sure that the wider organization felt that they were um that they were being heard in terms of what they needed as well um so that it's not just generic things that we are putting in and that balance is really hard when you've got budgets to consider you've got different leaders who want different things and say so there is what we ended up doing um Again, this is myself and the HR business partners because I really needed them to help me be advocates to their own leaders. Is to look at this is the, the, the basic portfolio. So this is everything that we can do. Now we can, and it's a bit of a menu, but we can tailor some of that slightly to what you want. And so we're working within those parameters. And we did get there. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are still people and still leaders that are still not 100% bought into LD and never will be. And that's okay because. The other 90% are, and so I can live with that for now. No, no, I totally agree. I love there's two things in there I really liked. One is the idea of value to all the audiences. So like you said, the senior leadership team need to see how it's making life easier for them and how it's driving the business forward. But realistically, are people going to buy in from the bottom up if it just feels like a top-down initiative that you're forcing upon them rather than something they've got any ownership over? And then realism as well. Maybe we just need to accept that not everyone's going to buy in, but do enough of the right people buy in for you to be able to have impact. And maybe the impact over time is what convinces people to to actually get invested. All those Scrooges who don't want to, I know it's it's November now, I can make some Christmas references, but all the the L&D Scrooges who don't want to, they'll be visited by the free ghost from all your success stories, hopefully. So yeah, I really like that. Um, Erin, I wanted to ask you about this idea of managing upwards and, and building credibility it allows us to show value as well. Yeah, so I think especially when you change industries, so obviously I came from luxury retail into accountancy. So, you know, there's an assumption that I don't perhaps know the challenges of accountancy, although I have to say that they're, they're almost the same challenges that luxury retail or any other, in- essentially people are people, right? And, and we, we suffer with a lot of the same challenges, irregardless of, of where you work or what you do. Um, one way I I do that is I'm really clear on when somebody asks me for something or I'm in a senior leadership um, meeting and they're asking for something, I'm really clear on what outcomes do you want from this? So I don't make assumptions. So what when this course is completed or when this intervention is completed, 
or tools being utilized? What are you going to see? What are you going to hear? And what are you going to feel? Because I want a really clear understanding of their expectations so that when we review or when we look at whether there has been value within this, I can refer back and say, this is what you asked for. What have you observed? Um, so that we can be very, very clear. Because I think sometimes when I've jumped in and I've, I've made assumptions about maybe what they've expected or I've I've said, yeah, I can do that, no problem. Um, but then they have something completely different in mind. So I think ask, dig deep, find out exactly what their expectations are and then deliver on that expectation to build that credibility. No, 100%. I think the challenge sometimes is uh, the enthusiasm to create stuff that you think shows impact can can overwhelm the the problem discovery phase or like the thing you need to do right at the very start to work out actually like you're saying what what would happen if we solved this problem for you and actually what are you expecting to see if we did doing that part in more detail will inform how well you do all the other stuff so i think that that framing like you said there is a nice framing from penny in the chat about asking people what keeps them up at night what impact yeah. does that have what if the impact was solved like this nice framing around people seeing the vision of what might happen if they did solve it mm. um annie i wanted to ask you as well your advice on getting buy-in any challenges you face and overcome or any thoughts on what erin and um, emma just shared there yeah i really agree with with both um particularly what emma said yeah particularly what emma said i think i think one of my things which has not always gone down well but I wouldn't change it is that I think it I really try and balance listening to the leadership and, and hearing what they want but also not being afraid to voice what the other people want what the the recipients the participants the learners want um because quite often in my experience a leadership team will say things like, we want our, our staff to be more productive because then we can have a bigger margin and blah, 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 blah. And we'll stop, we'll stop, we'll increase retention because we won't have to retrain when people leave. And there's often more to it than that. I'm not saying it, it's not as reductive as that. But often I'm like, okay, well, what do the people on the ground, what are they saying about their experience of, of working here and of learning here? Do they feel like they're learning? Do they feel like they're developing? Do they have decent work-life balance? What What is it that the people within the company actually want and how can you bring that and their voice into that conversation otherwise you quite often have these sort of plasters oh we'll just pop a little a little course in you've designed a little course on time management done no it's not done because you can teach them how to use the eisenhower matrix until the cow come cows come home but if your organizational culture doesn't support people to have the level of flexibility they need to look after their well-being or their mental health or their parental duties whatever it is then it's it's not really going to work in the long term so I'm quite prepared to make myself a little bit unpopular with leadership in order to advocate for learning solutions that I think are going to actually work in the long term and I I know not everyone um, can be bothered or, or want to take that approach but I do think yeah I'm I'm always prepared to do that um, and, and, and do that by having conversations, informal conversations and doing a little bit of research, sending out little forms to employees and trying to get the sense of what is, is really on the ground. Um, because otherwise, I do think you're, you're, you're sort of pacifying leadership rather than genuinely serving them. That's, that tends to be my approach. 
Um, and it's very interesting the role that I'm in now, where we design a learning solution. It's not I'm not in an internal L and D function, but our our product is a learning product that is bought by L and D teams within other companies. Um, and something that I'm really working on right now is being aware of the fact that what a lot of the leaders we speak to who are looking for L and D solutions are talking about is productivity. Gen Z have a bit of a bad reputation for you know alleged laziness. Um, and I'm like, well, quite often Gen Z have the same gripes about working culture that older people have had, but they're just less willing to tolerate worse working conditions. So how can we actually harness Gen Z and, you know, take into consideration their concerns about workplace and what they want out of their learning solutions and their company culture and feed that into our learning experience um, and feed that back up to the buyers so that you have a solution that works for everyone. Um, yeah. I really like that idea. I mean, it's challenging in the short term, so you can provide value in the long term. Like if you just say yes to senior leadership now and you know you should probably push back, you might please them in the short term, but in the long term, you lose all the people who are actually doing the thing on the job who you actually want to benefit from from what you're implementing. Very short follow-up question. I just wanted to ask you if that process of challenging people in the short term and then being able to provide the long-term evidence, has that kind of won people around and helped you get buy-in? It has. I haven't always done it perfectly. Um, definitely gone got into those conversations a little bit more fired up than I should have a few times, which I've learned from. And I think it's better to really arm yourself with data and case studies of where these things have worked um, and not to go in with emotion. So learn from my mistakes and aim not to do that. I can really add something yeah, to that, Carrie? Yeah. Well, I was just, just going to say that I've had that, well, <clears throat> where I haven't had the insight yet to build. So if you are going in and you are internal function, you, you don't have the insight yet. And there is something that you have to deliver is um, so f- we've, we've a lot of, we've been doing a lot of work as well, Annie on productivity, because we're trying to do the 40 work week, trialing the 40 work week. And what I did is I went in and said, look, this is what we're trying to do, but what are your challenges? And over those sessions, kind of collating uh, a more realistic picture of what everyone is experiencing and then being able to say, we've delivered, here are some of the challenges and things that we need to overcome. And this will then sort of form our second iteration of support. So if you can't go in and challenge right away, being able to provide an opportunity within the sessions themselves for people to give their feedback. Um, And then you, you have that really good foundation to go back to leadership and say, look, we did it, but here's some challenges. And actually, I think we, we, we're going to need to support these to, to be able to move forward successfully. Yeah, no, that makes uh, sense. Emma, um, just to bring you in as well before we move on. Yeah, and then absolutely great points from Erin and Amy. And I would say one of the things that I've noticed that can damage credibility is actually doing too much. Um, and agreeing to do too much. And, and I don't mean that as in volume of workload, but understanding where your organization is at that point and knowing what they can handle and what they need rather than what you want as an LD professional. And I've learned that the hard way, where they haven't been ready. Our organization hasn't been ready for, for example, a, a robust talent um identification process at this point. And, and it's not even really needed when we only had a hundred people or so. But I was thinking, right, this is the really interesting work that I love doing as an L&D practitioner. Well, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And actually, that can cause more harm than good to an L&D function when the organization just isn't there yet. So definitely one of my learnings is listen and challenge. Absolutely. Um, 
but really just understand where you are as an organization. Um, and on the flip side of that, also as an LD practitioner, know your own <laughs> skills limitations, ironically. So um, our site manager in the US asked me if I would um, look into facilitating sexual harassment training for our US colleagues. I was like, I do not, it's very much a legal area that I have no expertise in. So this is one area where we do need to spend money and go external. Um, and so again, I think it's it's the, those sort of challenges and, and knowing limitations of you and the organization will make a real difference to credibility long term. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That self-awareness. If you say no to the right, that you, there's no point saying yes to the wrong thing and it coming back to bite you and your credibility in the long term. And actually, one thing I've learned from this is that maybe there is no easy way to do things because I'm sure I think all three of you mentioned like doing it the hard way. And maybe as a small team, that like, often feels that you're doing it the hard way a lot of the time because you're not learning from past mistakes. You're doing everything for the first time a lot of the time. So uh, I really appreciate the transparency. And honesty, um, cool, we've only got 10 minutes left. So I wanted to remind people to drop any questions in the chat. And then I wanted to kind of do a quick fire round positivity uh, on a gloomy Wednesday. But we discussed a lot of hurdles and challenges. I know it can be a difficult role, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you stay motivated, how you keep enjoying it, how you keep it interesting for yourself. So Annie, did you want to kick us off? Yeah, it's a good question. Nice to end with... Um bit of positive vibes I think one of the biggest gifts of it is the freedom to try stuff um and I find that really exciting um it can can be a bit overwhelming at times when you have a plethora of options but I think I always like to remind myself that I left more restrictive you know educational environments and L&D teams so that I could have more freedom um so when, whenever I do feel like, oh God, how do I do this? Um, it's worth remembering that I've traded the rigidity of working within a bigger team for the flexibility and the freedom to try new things. Um, yeah, that's that's the main one, really. Just yeah. reminding myself that that's what I chose and why. Yeah, no, perspective is a good one. I like that as well. Often I find that here at How Now, like the main reason I joined is so I could have fun when I was writing content. And then sometimes if I'm just on the hamster wheel of doing the same thing a 50th time, I need to remind myself that, you can have some fun with it. And that was part of the reason you joined. So I can definitely relate. Um, Erin, how about yourself? Yeah, I think you do get a lot of freedom if you're in a, in a solo team. I mean, and, and certainly if the culture and organization supports that. So I do have a lot of freedom to do what I like and to be creative. Um, I love what I do. And I think that's important. If you, if you don't, if you don't enjoy the role, it, it, it doesn't really matter what support you have or how many people are in your team. Um, so I love what I do, but I also know that there are ways in which I have to organize because I'm very much organizing my own schedules. I get energy from people and locking myself away at home and, and being um, designing for a number of days on a laptop just drains me. So it's about also how can I set myself up for success? How can I make sure that I'm involved in the activities that really energize me and, and break up, you know, those more like spreadsheet days <laughs> so that I feel, I feel engaged and, and excited by what I'm doing. Yeah. Firm agree from me as well. Sometimes I just ask myself, is this the right time for me to be doing this? Like, am I in the right mindset for this? As a small team, you think oh, I need to meet this deadline, like these arbitrary deadlines you often set yourself. But if you're not in the right headspace, then um, do a different thing, come back to it. Emma, how about yourself? 
Yeah, and it was interesting because somebody wrote um, a question, I think Colin wrote a question saying about do L&D um, feel like secondary in the organisations that we work in? And I think that's something that absolutely motivates me, not that we're secondary, but that we're actually starting or I'm starting to get a seat at the table more often now. People are coming proactively to me rather than me having to reach out to them to get my thoughts or views or how can we do this or how can we do that? And I think that is something that I absolutely love that um, you get the excitement from those around you. So if other people are excited by learning and development and um, what we can possibly do together, then that absolutely motivates me to continue um, exploring lots of different areas to help with that. I'm going to be greedy because no questions have come in, but I have my own question based on what you just said there, Emma. But um, this idea that if you come in and there maybe there's an existing perception of L&D, like, Someone someone told me before that they went in and then they took stock of every department and every person's perception of L&D now so they could understand where it was at and then how they could tweak it moving forward. So I just wondered if you experienced that yourself or is that a good starting point for other people if they're looking to build that credibility? Should they kind of do an audit internally of how it's perceived now and then try and see what the perceptions are before they try and shift them? Yeah. Uh, And it's an interesting one because we have recently, well, we've been doing some um, very loose employee listening surveys. And I think whenever you do surveys or go out to people, it's a moment in time, right? So you do a development program with your top people. They're going to say it's fantastic. You do something else and you'll get less results. So I think as long as you remember that, then uh, it's definitely useful to get that anecdotal feedback. And often after we do initiatives and things, we, we do get that. Um, I think it I think it goes back to there's no tick box. So I came into this organization thinking, right, I have to do mentoring. I need to get coaching because this is things that I've seen in other organizations. This is what for me LND was about based on previous experience. And I think working in a different organization, a different sector, different industry, going to more networking events, hearing about the use of AI, for example, coming into LD. That's definitely um, opened my eyes around it's not so much about doing the same thing, but how can we do things differently that still adds that value? So um, I think an audit goes so far, but really it's about listening to what the people want, but being realistic with with that, I mean, you go out with a training needs analysis, people will give you, you know, they'll want the world. So you have to balance it out slightly. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's being innovative with what you've got. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I definitely agree with that point of actually just being more open-minded is probably the the right framing for that. There was one question. I think we, we've got a couple actually, but there was one around the L&D principles. I think Annie and Erin, you both kind of mentioned this a bit around some principles you'd built and just curious on, uh, Mark's asking kind of where they came from or what you built those principles around. Yeah, good question. There was a there was a structure that I used that I found um, that I was ref- I was referred to by my mentor who is the head of learning within the company I was working at with at the time. Um, and I can't remember what it was called, um, what this little guide was, but I can try and find it and share it on LinkedIn if it, it would yeah. be helpful. So feel free to connect afterwards. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, otherwise, in the business I'm working now, we essentially just did a bit of a brainstorming session around what our learning hypothesis is based on who are who are our learners, um, what are the different you know avatars, I suppose, for who our learners are, and what do we know based on our gut instincts and research is the best way to help them to learn, and then come up with a handful of principles based on that and streamline the way you design um, back from that. Um, I, had, I had one more comment on the motivation piece, but I'll let Aaron speak on principles because I know that was the main question. Um, I, I'm trying to think. I think the principles I was uh, I was discussing. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was just around the um, the strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, around that, and that's just basically that's something that I've been working hard on developing since we were trialing the four day work week. Because we have to be every time is now our most valuable resource. So just making sure that everything aligns to our strategic objectives. So we use Traction, um, which is by Gina Wickman, which is like an entrepreneurial operating system, and that's run through the entire business. So um, every well, everyone's supposed to, as a department, complete a, a one-year plan that's aligned to the vision. So that's it sounds easy, but it's, comp- it's not that easy. Yeah. But it's just being able to define... How can everything I do align to where we're trying to go as a business? And how can I how can I bring people on that journey? And how can I make sure at the end of three years, 2025, that I've I've achieved this or I've I've moved us in that general direction? I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's any links you want to share, I can put them in the email I send out afterwards. Same for you, Annie. And we can um then people can check those kind of resources out um independently. Annie, you were gonna say something about motivation as well before we wrap up. Yeah, it was just two quick things. I've seen quite a few people in the chat commenting on variety being part of how we stay motivated. I think a lot of people that go into L&D love variety, right? Because there's a bit of admin, a bit of training, a bit of coaching. There's lots of stuff that goes on. And it isn't always possible to have your perfectly balanced week. I, I just went through quite an intense learning design sprint where I didn't really get much people time, which as a coach myself, I found really challenging. So I'm trying to now, I also work fully remotely. I, I live in Lisbon. Um, so I'm my team is in London so I'm now ha- trying to have the self-awareness to be like go to a co-working space get that face to time with people take on a few private clients in my coaching practice just to balance out what I know is a temporary thing so I think that variety is, is really important but also this is a bit less cool but like have a bit of process get organized tick those little things off create a cute little notion template which is what I always do um because we we know a lot in, as ND experts about motivating our learners, but if we don't apply those principles to ourselves, it can feel tough. So celebrate the little wins and have whoever it is, whether it's your mentor or your manager, um, help you stay accountable to celebrating those small things that you tick off. Otherwise, um, yeah, it can feel like it gets lost. Yeah. No, I love that. And also that point about celebrating your own wins. If you're a small solo team, sometimes you have to be your own biggest fan because other people aren't going to notice the success stories that you have internally. And sometimes you have to just be your own biggest fan, shout about it, tell people that you just achieved this great thing. So be shameless, be your own biggest fan when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, uh, I don't know. Can if, I just? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Can, yeah. I, sorry, Gary, can I just mention one thing? Um, and I, I promise this isn't necessarily a plug and Gary hasn't paid me, but uh never underestimate the use of a fantastic lms and like for us how now has been the absolute game changer across the board it's allowing people to as they say learn on the go we're, we're putting more events on because there is an actual booking system as part of it that it's not just having to be managed by somebody with um diaries that's really hard sometimes 
um, the feedback, the new feature on it, which is the feedback feature. Somebody was asking about, have we have I used the Kirkpatrick model? It's impossible sometimes to get good feedback from people because you send out forms, they never fill them in. Um, whereas with this, if you've got five smiley faces, that's enough to get you moving anyway. So I would, <laughs> um, but honestly, regardless of which NMS you have, for me, I don't think I would still be able to um, sleep quite so well at night had I not got that as my foundation block anyway. Awesome, Emma. I, yeah, I definitely did not pay Emma. This is not um, no bribery going on. Um, I don't. We actually had a few more questions come in, so I don't know if um, if you have a hard stop or if you're happy to just take a couple of these questions. Cool. Um, rather than put everyone on the spot, I just wonder if anyone had any advice you'd give to your past self who just started in this role, like anything you'd uh, do differently and anything you'd pay more attention to, stuff like that. That's a hard one. Um, I would just say be curious and follow, follow, follow the things that excite you. Um, and when I first started, I, I was very restricted and we were having to deliver the same training that we've been delivering for like five years. And I recognized very quickly that is not, that is not the type of environment where I'm going to, um, that's not the type of environment where I'm going to be successful. So just trying to figure out, I think, what is it that you really love? How can you invest more in that? And how can you kind of create for yourself a role, um, hopefully in, within a supportive organization that really allows you to, to bring your best self? No, I really like that point of curiosity, actually. I attended a good webinar with um, Mass Marketing, who do the marketing for L&D um, like consulting and so on last week and uh well it's this week actually and they mentioned the power of being curious because you can understand what's in it for your audience and that is such a useful thing to understand early on so i can definitely see why that would be um, a useful tip uh cool and then the other question was about if anyone's ever considered changing the positioning and naming of the lnd department um for example paris is his company calls it culture coaching they do the same thing as L&D, but top management seems to connect and leverage us more with this shift in how they perceive it. So that's interesting, actually. There's this concept of like value-laden language as the psychological term, but for some people, certain terms carry baggage and it negatively impacts how they perceive something. So if you come into a business and everyone just perceives L&D as someone's messaging me for the millionth time to complete a mandatory course I'm not interested in, then maybe there is some sort of baggage in that. But just curious if anyone had any thoughts on that one. I think it's a it's a tricky one because it's do you lean into what people know but might have more negative connotations or mixed connotations towards or try and do something a bit new and different which might leave people being a bit like what is that um in my, in my previous company we were positioned as the enablement team which I didn't love I, I don't know why the word enablement just doesn't feel great to me it makes like enabling just feels has a weird connotation so I didn't love that at my role in Hyphen, we position ourselves more in the, we use more of the language of empowerment um, in terms of Gen Z, like empowering Gen Z through soft skills in the workplace, which I think resonates better with with them or with the learners. Um, but ultimately, I do think it's, it's useful to speak the language of what people know as well. Yeah. So I think a bit of a mixture. Yeah, it's a trade-off, isn't it? Like people might perceive, perceive this negatively, but I can change that perception versus people going, what the hell is this? I don't even know what this means, which is what I feel like when I go to 90% of websites and I read their hero copy at the top. I'm like, I have no idea what you do. Just don't try and be clever. Try and make me understand. So I think that's the, the thing, isn't it?